بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد ومن ولا السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Welcome to SwissCast I'm your host Suhaib Webb Great to be with you mashallah mashallah It's been a minute Ramadan has kept us all very busy May Allah accept your fasting And continue that Ramadan glow You know the nur of Ramadan May Allah keep that nur in all of our chest, inshallah. I just want to thank you all again for the likes, the loves, and the shares. When you support voices that you feel align with your values, you're filling a space. An empty space will be filled. So if we're not out there speaking about Islam and about our religion and about our community, other people will do that who may not necessarily like us. You know what I mean? Now, we have been dedicating some time to the idea of being woke for those, of, for those of you who haven't heard the previous episodes on this subject matter, I encourage you to do so so that you can slide into the, this one right here seamlessly. But today we want to begin to unpack a topic which is pretty contentious, especially in the Sunni Muslim community, especially in the light of recent history under the tremendous amount of oppression, dictators, and just straight up ratchetness that Sunni Muslims have had to deal with with their governments heightened by the Arab Spring and seeing even, unfortunately, for example, in Egypt, scholars coming out initially and trying to placate and domesticate the general communal angst towards autocracy and dictatorships from every religious background in the Muslim community. I was living there. I heard people call who were Sufis and Salafis, you name it, liberals, all kind of, quote unquote, representations of Islam. And unfortunately, kind of, quote unquote, representations of Islam. And unfortunately, these people were telling people that what you are participating in is what's called khuruj anil hakim, which is a subversive revolt, a military revolt against leadership. Confusing that with what we want to talk about today. And what we want to talk about today is opposition to injustice and dedicate a number of episodes to this idea. Because again, confusing the idea of legitimate opposition to tremendous oppression. And you look at what's happening in the Muslim world and people are just really struggling. So peaceful forms of opposition, political engagement, confusing that with khuruj anil hakim, right? Which is, of course, Armed sedition. Why that's important for us here in America is because as we grow politically, as our political maturity increases and our activism increases, and as our theology and our religion is tested and grows, fault lines start to develop within the community. And once again, recently I heard someone say um, that political engagement is something that the Muslim community shouldn't be involved in, and actually quoting uh, irresponsibly the concept of khuruj anil hakim sedition and armed revolt against a leader you know voting is obviously not the same as an armed revolt but what i see and what concerns me on both sides is that you have extremes so you have you know pseudo jihadists who have taken it to the umpteenth level in the name of repelling injustice and establishing justice you know became really some of the greatest actors of injustice that we've seen in a number of years within the muslim world and then on the other side, as I said earlier, just cowering and 
completely assimilating to to life without having any type of political uh, or justice concerns is a problem. So what I wanted to do in this episode is just dedicate some time to the episode is just dedicate some time to the historical precedent. One of the non-negotiable values of the Muslim community is opposition to injustice. And in order to to kind of substantiate that, I decided to go through some historical examples of that. And then in the future, inshallah, in other episodes, give a few uh, examples of great leaders who stood against injustice and then talk about the, how did the idea of khuruj anil hakim, sedition and rising against uh, a government in a way which is, of course, violent and unhealthy, how did that get confused with legitimate opposition to injustice? And then talk about some ideas, inshallah, that I think are important to us uh, in the American Muslim community. So let's first of all start with the idea of zulm. The word for injustice actually comes from a word which means to put something in the wrong place. And that's why shirk is called zulm, because the right place for a person is in, in disobedience to Allah, is also called a form of zulm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the sixth chapter of the Quran, those who believe and do not mix, they do not mix their, their faith with zulm, meaning shirk, right? Because the nature is fitrah, the nature is tawheed. The other example, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, those people zolemu and fusahum, right? Who have sinned against themselves because the nature of a person, unlike Christianity, which believes in original sin and an original evil, uh, Islam believes in original goodness. So to be in a state of sin would to be to put my nature in the wrong place. Subhanallah. So it's called zulm. But what we're going to talk about today is what Sheikh Muhammad Khadr Hussein, who was a great uh, Sheikh of Al Azhar almost a hundred years ago talks about is the oppression of people against another people. And what he means by this, the, the actual meaning is to put something in the wrong place, step on the rights of someone. Um, and that could be done through transgressing the rights of others through physical injustice by torture, injury, or death. It could also be a form of financial injustice by force, plunder, or theft. It could also be related to like shaming a person publicly, right? Uh, demonizing that person through intimidation or false accusations. So we're going to talk about that idea of zulm being something that historically there is a historical precedent i think this is really going to interest you guys found throughout our history as a faith-based community mashallah the first place we can look at is the quran itself in the second chapter of the quran verse 279 allah says very clearly and it's a threat la wala which means don't commit oppression and you won't be oppressed and of course these verses are talking about interest. So the idea is that you're taking wealth that doesn't belong to you. So the idea here is that this is a form of economic oppression. We're going to talk about a form of economic oppression. We're going to talk about the different types of oppression in the future, inshallah ta'ala, because there are some that are clearly defined by our religion and there are others that are left to be negotiated by people as long as they align uh, with our religious values. But here, la tazlimuna wa la tazlamun. Don't wrong, don't oppress others, and you won't be oppressed. And I think I've said this before, that the word zulm in Arabic is a transitive verb, fi'l muta'addi, which means it needs an object. But often in the Quran, it is mentioned without the object as if to show or imply that don't, la tazlimu, don't oppress in any way, shape, or form, right? As if to say small oppression or great oppression, you should be away from oppression. 
in general. Uh, another uh, verse in the Quran is found um, in the fourth chapter of the Quran, the 75th verse, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala notes that people who have been oppressed, people that have been oppressed and are weak, are going to make this incredible dua. Rabbana akhrijana min ahluha. Oh Allah, oh our Lord, provide us a way out from this, this oppressive situation in this, in this city where the people are oppressive. And make for us a wali. Imam Al-Qurtabi said the wali is the person that's going to come and help them. So they're asking Allah, please provide us someone that can come and stop this oppression. So we understand now the importance of being an ally to people who are suffering injustice and who are the objects of oppression. And grant from, from you, grant us from you help. Uh, there's some interesting things that we'll talk about in this verse in the future. Why does it say, Milladunka, Milladunka? Meaning that the way that we want help and the way that we, that the way that we want help and the way that we want to exercise opposition to injustice should be in line with greater faith values. That's really, really, subhanAllah, incredible. Through, throughout the Sunnah of the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, in fact, prior to prophethood, we see this, this idea of looking after the needs of the oppressed and the vulnerable, standing up for people uh, and for ourselves uh, in the face of injustice. So you see, for example, uh, with Hilf al-Fudul, this alliance that happens amongst the Quraysh, why the Prophet wasallam is still a child, as a reaction to someone who was wronged financially. And, and there's reasons for this uh, that we'll talk about in a second, but they came together and they made this alliance where they promised a number of things, three of which were, number one is to make sure that there was no favoritism, no nepotism. Number two, that they would make sure that the people around them who were alliance, that their needs were being handled. And the last one was to agree amongst themselves to solve these problems, right? Not to be silent uh, in the face of injustice and impression, uh, oppression. The Prophet ﷺ said that he witnessed this alliance and later on in authentic hadith, he said, لَقَدْ حَدَرْتُ فِي دَارِ بْنِ جُدْعَان You know, this house of Ibn Jud'an. The Prophet said, I was present at that that moment in his home, Hilfan. I saw an alliance take place. لَوْ دُعِيتُ إِلَيْهِ الْآنَ لَأَجَبْتُ And he's saying, now as a Prophet, if I was called to 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 organize around that alliance, I would do so. Another example of this is the Prophet ﷺ taking this famous Arab statement that was said way before his lifetime, ﷺ, The Prophet ﷺ takes that statement and expands it and says, Unsur You know, help your brother whether he is oppressed or an oppressor. So the Sahaba were like, we understand how you help someone who's oppressed, but how do you help an oppressor? How do you help someone who's actually engaged in injustice? And the Prophet said that you stop him, that you stop him, and that is your you stop him, and that is your nasr, that is your helping that person. Now, that's important, and I'm sure all of you are aware of these texts, and there's numerous other texts 
that would help us to understand that standing up against injustice and standing up for justice is an obligation. In fact, in the Quran, Kunu Qawamina Bil Qist, right? This appears twice in the Quran. The idea of standing up for justice is interesting. It says Kunu because it's not restricted. It means you should constantly be dedicated to the cause of justice. And inferred from that is you should be constantly in opposition to injustice. Now, what I would like to do is go beyond that because, you know, people can debate over religious texts. And that's why Imam Malik in the Muatta, when I studied this with Sheikh Ahmad Taharayan, you see something very interesting. He doesn't start with the Quran and Hadith in his chapters in the Muatta. He starts with the examples of the people who were closest to him chronologically and then goes backwards to the time of the Prophet Sallallahu and the reason that Malik did this to the time of the Prophet and the reason that Malik did this, Rahimullah, as explained to me by to, by Sheikh Ahmed, is that he wanted to show that this is there are precedents for this, and that these verses and that these hadith led to these actions, and that these weren't debated, right? These weren't debated. So if we found this amongst the Tabi Tabi'in, right, and the Tabi'in and the Sahaba, back to the Prophet that action has led to this kind of, imp th th those texts have led to the implementation in this way, then that means that's the correct understanding. SubhanAllah. So what we're going to do now is go back, if you will, and look at the communities that came after the Prophet ﷺ and how they, our ummah, regardless of geographic location, understood that being in opposition to injustice is a fard is an obligation. So we'll start uh, with something really interesting, and that's with the early, there's an interesting discussion about that we'll have in the future. But we'll start um, early on with the, the Khalifa of Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, because Abdul Malik ibn Marwan is the first Khalifa who begins to recognize that people have these legitimate complaints and concerns. So what he does is he establishes a day a day of the week where he would, would actually meet with people who felt that they were being oppressed. And it continued to grow to the extent that he actually had to appoint a Qadi, uh, Abu Idris, to, to take over this process. And then Abu Idris appoints people uh, to help him out. But the point is we see under the Khilafat of Abdul Malik uh, ibn Marwan, the idea of starting a institution, if you will, an administrative policy to address the needs of people who felt that they were the victims of injustice. Now, this continues up to Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. Now, this continues up to Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. And, and the reason that I'm telling you this is it's, it's something profound, who, after the death of Suleiman ibn Abdul Malik, actually, right after Suleiman's burial, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz announces in the kingdom that anyone who was the victim of his injustice, Suleiman's injustice, come to me, we'll investigate your claims, and we will return to you anything that we can to uh, rectify this injustice. And he did this with such passion that he was actually warned by people, like, do not fear the reprisals of these people. Like, you're taking everything from them that they've taken from other people. Maybe you should, like, slow down. Maybe maybe you should hold back. And, and Sayyidina Umar uh, radiallahu anhu, Ibn Abdul Aziz, he said, you know, if I fear them more than I fear the hereafter, like there's no benefit in this. So he was like really dedicated to this, uh, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. After the time of Sayyidina Umar Ibn Abdul Aziz, Khilafat. And we know that the Amawis and the Abbasis were not friends. A lot of bloodshed, a lot of ugliness. But one of the institutions 
that the Abbasis held on to was that day. The day to listen to people who felt they were the objects of injustice. So you start with Al-Mahdi and you move on to Al-Hadi. These are, of course, Khalifas. Then you get to Harun Rashid and then Ma'mun. And all of them kept that day. You have a day, an established day within government to listen to the needs of people who feel that they are the objects of oppression and injustice. And that's incredible. Subhanallah. And I want you to pay attention to this because it's going to evolve over time into ways that are very powerful. Because after Al-Muhtadi, it doesn't stop. What he realizes is, is like, this is, you know, like a department that needs to be built out, that needs to be scaffold. So what he does is he appoints qadis and he appoints people in different positions so that they can dedicate the idea of people who feel that they are be being treated unjustly and oppressed. Now, I'm not saying it was perfect. And I'm not saying that everything was rosy because I don't believe in romanticizing history. But it is pretty freaking amazing. And, and, and if the community had negotiated its understandings, and if the leadership of the community had negotiated its understandings around repelling injustice to the point that from the time of Abdul Madik ibn Marwan to 255 after Hijri, you have this day maintained from the Amawis through the Abbasis. And then you get to Al-Muhtadi, who develops it into its own independent department that has its own uh, representatives who would go around like caseworkers, okay? And they would investigate these cases, and then people would go to Qadis and Muftis. It's absolutely, subhanAllah, pretty cool, pretty, pretty incredible. There are also individual examples of people, scholars, some of the great scholars, examples of people, scholars, some of the great scholars who stood up against injustice. You look at Sayyidina Imamana Abi Hanifa, uh, who was asked to become the Qadi, and he said, I can't become the Qadi because I'm not qualified. And then, of course, the Khalifa that was asking him said, you're a liar. And then Abu Hanifa said, well, you see, a liar can't be a Qadi. <laughs> And, and, and actually died, some people say, rahimahullah, in prison. You see Imam Malik, uh, radiallahu anhu, who refuses to give a fatwa in the name of the state. And that's why many ulama stayed away from the, the office of Qadi. Because a mufti can just give his or her opinion. But the Qadi is now speaking on behalf of the state. And they didn't want to be, be compromised by the state. So you see Imam Malik, who's asked to give a fatwa favorable to the state, and he refuses to do so, and he's punished, uh, and he's punished severely. Look at Sayyidina Imam Shafi, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. They, they suffered, Imam Nawi, Imam Ibn Taymiyyah. Uh, but a great example, uh, and someone who oftentimes isn't talked about but should be, Abu Mansur al-Maturidi, uh, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, the founder of the Maturidi school in theology, which is followed by the majority of the Hanafis. Um, you know, he he was from Samarkand, and there was an uprising in Samarkand, some rebels who rose against the official government. And they came back to the city of Abu Mansur al-Maturidi. And Abu Mansur al-Maturidi lives in the 4th century. Uh, he dies around 333, uh, if my memory uh, serves me well. But, you know, he is approached by these people, and he was an old man. And, and, and they began to intimidate him and intimidate his community. And, and then they sent, actually, they, they, they brought with them a letter uh, from one of the leaders of this seditious movement. And, you know, they asked him, like, what is your response about this letter? And he said, Zidna Vulman, you know, you can increase us in all the injustice and oppression you want. Hatta nazida fi 
right? And, and, and you can keep doing that, and we are just going to keep increasing our du'as in the middle of the night, right? We're going to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And interestingly enough, one of the generals of that army that was later defeated, the army of, of, of rebels, actually was hit with an arrow, and he died. And on that arrow was written that this arrow has been sent by the hands of old women who pray in the middle of the night that Allah would relieve your oppression from us. SubhanAllah. There are other examples of kind of a state dedication to addressing the idea of injustice. So what we're doing now is we're creating a precedent. We went through verses of the Quran, went through a few hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, which all of us know. But then there comes this question of how do you apply that? How do you turn this into us know? But then there comes this question of how do you apply that? How do you turn this into application? So I've given you one as kind of a state understanding, regardless of who the leaders were, the Amawis and Abbasis hated each other. And then also at an individual level, giving you a story of Abu Mansur al-Maturidi, rahimahullah ta'ala. I want to give another example of, of how this played out in the state level. We'll go to Andalus in Spain. Till now, we've been just kind of in the Levant area. And then we went, of course, now to Samarkand, which is like Central Asia. But now let's go to Andalus. Muslims love to talk about Andalus. But there was a great leader there. And his name was Al-Mansur. And Al-Mansur actually is, is the one who makes Andalus through his policies, um, through his organization around 30, 40 years to what we know Spain being. Before that, you know, Andalus. Andalus is a Berbery word. It's not an Arabic word. It means Bilad al-Mujrimin, right? It means the lands of, the land of criminals. The Arabs used to be scared of Andalus. Like, don't go there. You'll never come back. So Al-Mansur, uh, Muhammad ibn Amr is his real name. You know, he's the one who becomes, interestingly enough, the story, the leader of Spain and then enacts this like 40-year plan to really change it and make it what we know of it now. But one day in his court, and this is mentioned in Tarikh al-Andalus, which is a book on the history of Andalus. You know, he was, he was in his court and he, he noticed that a man came into his court and this man was disturbed. So he asked this man, what's wrong with you? And he said, that servant of yours that's sitting next to you, and they were sitting up high. He said, that man has wronged me. And then he said, I actually had him subpoenaed. I had him officially subpoenaed, and he refused to show up in front of the Qadi. So Al-Mansur, he turns to his, his servant, and he says, and I'm going to listen to this case. So subhanAllah, they're standing in front of the Khalifa of Andalus, right? And they present their cases to him. And he becomes angry, uh, Al-Mansur. And, and, and this is the interesting part. He turns to his servant and he says to his guards, take this man to the office of the person, Sahibul Madalim. Take him to the office of the person who is in charge of looking after evil and wrongdoing. One of our teachers, you know, explaining this said, Ajib. Like, isn't it incredible that in the government of Spain, there was an office dedicated solely to investigating the claims of injustice and oppression? So now again, what I'm trying to show you here is that historically, right, there had always been this dedication, regardless of the political entity. And I give you one example, political entity, and I give you one example of one of the great Salihin of being invested in making sure that injustice 
doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Uh, I'll give you a few more examples, inshallah, Tana, because I don't want to take a lot of your time. But I find these things extremely invigorating because one of the challenges of dealing with Islamophobia, one of the challenges of dealing with a post, I wouldn't say post even, but a Eurocentric world, a world that is still filled with a lot of white supremacy, as well as atheism, is the idea that, number one, religion is barbaric, um, that religion is about power, and that religion was not really concerned about human rights and people's dignity and liberty. And, and we know these things to be wrong. But when you look at your history as a religious community and you see this incredible, powerful investment at a private, public, and political sector, you're like, man, this is dope. Like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just feeling it right now. MashaAllah as a Muslim. Alhamdulillah. I'll give you an example. In recent times, uh, Sheikh Hamouda uh, was a great uh, Tunisian scholar. And, you know, during his time, this is before, you know, well over a hundred something years ago, the emir of Tunis was sitting with him and the government prior to that government was known to like slaughter scholars, man. Tunis has gone through a tremendous amount of, of, of trauma and it's great to see that it's, you know, it looks like it's on the road to recovery. May Allah bless Tunis, inshallah. And, and, uh, Sheikh Hamouda, he, he was sitting in this gathering and this, this emir began to boast and say, see how we treat you. Mashallah, we're, we're so much more benevolent to the ulama than those who came before us. And the Sheikh, he said to him, well, the reason that you're not killing us is because you, you've given us so much stuff, right? You've, you've showered upon us like, you know, thousands of gifts and positions and jobs and homes and money. It's like, you know, thousands of gifts and positions and jobs and homes and money that who's going to say anything? But I guarantee you, the sheikh said, if we were to say something, you, you would do what they did. But the only reason that you don't do anything is because we don't say anything and we don't say anything because we've been compromised. So the leader, the emir became extremely angry and he sent the sheikh out and he sat for a while and then he left and he ordered his guards, bring that sheikh back in, Sheikh Hamouda, rahimahullah. And Sheikh Hamouda, he sat down uh, in front of, uh, of of this emir as he came back. And the emir said to him, like, why did you say that, man? Like, why did you say that? Like, why would you do that? And he said, because it's the truth. What I said is the truth and you know it's the truth. And the emir, he became humble and he said, thank you. Uh, and, and he appreciated what he said. But the point is, the sheikh noted the idea of being compromised to the point where you don't personally once in my initial stages as a Muslim, I was studying with a teacher who we have what's called the mulazima system where you live with your teacher because the idea is that you can shrink the idea of public piety, which is very easy. We can all be, you know, publicly pious isn't really a struggle, but private piety is really the challenge. And I struggle with that. We all struggle with that. But when you live with a sheikh, the idea is that you don't see that contradiction. Sheikh, the idea is that you don't see that contradiction. So you live with him, you serve him. I ironed his clothes. I got food for him. I took his clothes to the cleaners and we traveled overseas together. And I memorized the Quran with him. And we were once in a very, very wealthy Muslim country. And the sheikh was trying to raise money for his project. And he came back to where we were staying. It was early in the morning, I believe. And he said to me, you know, tonight we've been invited to the home of the the leader of this country and i'm going to be allowed to present my project to that leader and you know i'm very hopeful that i think we can raise the money 
And then as the day went on, I remember I was memorizing Soto Shora. So it's really kind of an interesting thing. Memorize Soto Shora and this is happening. And and the, the sheikh came later on and he said, you know, we can't go. And I was like, why? And he said, well, the money that these people have has been money that's been taken unjustly. Um, and it wouldn't be, there would be no baraka. So now, you know, at that moment, I'm just like, but don't, God, I don't know yet. And he's like, there's no blessing in it. It's not allowed to take things that have been taken unjustly. So, alhamdulillah, I just wanted to spend some time with you. There's other examples. I mean, there's examples of scholars who, subhanAllah, they would realize that, for example, they were in charge of an orphanage and that one of the leaders was going to, you know, manifest destiny, if you will, take that orphanage for the state. So they would actually knock, they would have the house knocked down and sell uh, everything that was left and give all that money to those orphans. And and the heads of state would ask them, like, why would you do that? And they would quote, like, the verse from Sultan Kaf, you know, about the boat and knocking the hole in the boat. Right? There was a, a king that wanted to steal this boat from them. So they would see themselves like, I had to destroy this and, and give the, the equity to these, these orphans because I knew that you were going to try to take it from them. Like, you go through our history and you find this constant dedication to private and public and political uh, uh, the political removal of injustice perfect, and it wasn't always great but what I want us to understand quickly is when people try to tell us that we have no historical precedent to be concerned about these children that were locked up recently in America we have no precedent to be concerned about the occupied territories in Gaza we have no precedent to be politically engaged making sure that our dignity as a community is taken care of and that our faith is protected and our lives and dignity is protected we need to be very very careful of that kind of message perhaps those people aren't aware of history uh, perhaps they're not aware of the information that we shared given husnul but now you are so it's really really invigorating to know that there is a historical precedent at the private and political levels to investing in the removing of injustice. We're going to, inshallah, iron this out more in future episodes. Next week, we have a really, really incredible guest. And the week after that, we have a really, really incredible guest. Barakallahu feekum wa jannah. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Wa sallallahu wa rahmatullahi. Of these verses is to unify the masses. Humps up to Hesek and then yes.